All right, well, good morning to you, and uh, good to be with you here to get today, and uh, welcome to any guests that are here as well. And we're going to begin a study, uh, Lord willing anyways, begin a study on uh, 1 Peter. So we've got a, a number of messages I've got ahead, and I'm looking ahead at uh, this, this little book, uh, the epistle to Peter, or the first epistle that he writes, and we're going to look at that this morning as uh, we open up. But uh, I wanted to say this, that sometimes you ask, where do I come up with the um, motivation to pick books and things like that? And uh, honestly, as I look through what we've studied, and we do study quite a bit in, the, in this church as far as over the last, it's almost been four years that we've been here now. And I'm not the only one that is a Bible teacher here. There's several of the, the men here and the ladies too that do their Bible study. And so you've covered a lot of different books and of the of all the different, uh, the 65 other books that are in the Bible. And um, I, I was looking down through some of those, and I said, I haven't gone to First Peter in a while, and I haven't gone through it expositionally, I don't think in a church setting anyways, um, for a long time. And so I, that was part of my motivation. And the other thing is this, I find it to be a book that is extremely practical for the age in which we live. Um, and we'll talk more about that. Uh, it's always been that way, but it is probably one of the go-to books that you should go to one of the letters that you should you know look at regularly and then be encouraged to read it as well and speaking about reading it it's not very long all right just a few chapters about 105 verses um you you could read it in probably 20 minutes or so i don't know you know the speed at which you read but it's not a difficult book that way and i think it's it's uh, lays some very foundational truths and some very relevant things for our day and age. So that's some of my reasoning behind it. And before we even uh, begin to read Scripture, I just want to pause now and, and just pray and ask the Lord to bless this study and however long that we are in it, and that God would just be honored in it. Father, I thank You for the Word of God. And again, we stand before You here, seated before You as well, just to knowing, Lord, that we have the Bible. And we are blessed for that. We thank You that, Lord, You've given it to us in our own language even. And we thank You, Lord, that we can open it up and freely proclaim it. Thank You for each that's come out this morning and those that will hear this message. And I pray, Lord, that You would just open up Your Word as only You can do. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would have His way in our hearts and our minds today. And by way of remembrance, stir up those things we already know. Also teach us things we don't know. And Lord, help us to just apply those things in a way that would show obedience. And we thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ. And above all, that He would be lifted up in this place. And as He's promised, He would draw people to Himself. May He be lifted up in this study as we go through it. I ask this in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. I want to read the first two verses here of 1 Peter chapter 1. It says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Now, it's important when you begin a study of anything or begin reading in Scripture, you you begin with some 
questions, all right? I'm big on questions. I remember uh, I worked as a dispatcher for years uh, when I was downstate in the, the sheriff's department in Bangor. And one of the first things they always talk to you as a dispatcher is when you take a phone call, ask questions of the basic questions of the who, what, where, when, and then we had weapons. That was another one. You always ask that, you know. But the who, what, where, and when, those are important, all right? And when you come to the Bible and you open it up and God is about to speak to us, we often have to stop and say, all right, who, what, where, when? Who is he talking to, right? And who wrote the book, for instance? And those questions are answered right here in the very first verse. When you look at it, it begins with the name of the writer. The man's name was Peter. His name means stone or rock, okay? And you know that Christ uh, told Peter that um, back, remember he said in uh, the Gospels it's recorded, he called him uh, Peter, you know, little stone, and he says, upon this rock I will build my church. The rock he was talking about, by the way, was himself, Jesus. And he was going to use Peter, though, as the apostle who had opened up the church age. And so he was a prominent person in, in history. Um, he was used, and you read of that in Acts chapter 2, he is one of the apostles, and he was the man who stood up at the day of Pentecost, another fulfillment of Jewish feasts, the Feast of Pentecost. And you have him there, and um, he begins to preach to them out of the Old Testament and proclaims to them why Jesus is the Christ. And he preaches the Gospel. The Gospel is the very simple message, and I, I try to get it every week on Sunday morning. I think every service, I try to get it in I, I purposely to tell you that Jesus died for your sins and that He was buried. He rose again the third day. He's alive today, and He will offer you forgiveness of your sin if you'll need trust Him by faith. That's all you have to do. Trust Him. Turn from your sin. Trust Him. That's it. That's simple. That's the simple Gospel message. Well, Peter knew that. He proclaimed the Gospel message there in Acts chapter 2. And you find that there were 3,000 people that believed it. That's a lot. <laughs> that really is. And the church started. And from there, they dispersed. It took a little while. They were first in Jerusalem. And then, and then later, they were spread out a little further. And when they were first called Christians, they were in a place called Antioch. That's modern-day Syria. And later on, you have men like Peter and Paul. They're the most prominent ones. But all the apostles went out and they went and brought the gospel message, the Bible, the story of Christ. They brought that to the far corners of the world. There is evidence that the early apostles, those that were with Jesus, they went out after the resurrection and they got as far as places like China and India far northern as into the northern parts of Europe and, and possibly like the territory where it was pretty hostile. Uh, I know we were in Ukraine as missionaries and, and they, uh, in their traditions, say that uh, Andrew the Apostle came and he preached the Gospel to the people who were in the, the, the Slavs who lived there in uh, what is now Kiev, Ukraine. That was the first place that Christians were baptized in that region. And you could go as far as Spain and France, and all down through Africa, into Ethiopia, other places like that. And there is testimonial evidence and, and uh, written evidence that many of the apostles gave their lives in regions like that. Places like India, Ethiopia, the, the Near East, the Far East, all of that, the Middle East. And the Gospel message went out. 
In the year AD 64, the Emperor Nero was reigning. And Nero was not a friend to Christians. He, Nero really was a friend to nobody. He loved himself and he would often gather his people there in Rome and, and he believed he was a great singer. That's what they say. And he didn't really have a great voice, although he would hold singing contests and he would call for the best singers throughout the Roman Empire to come. And, and every time, of course, Nero won the contest, right? Even though probably he wasn't the greatest singer. But he loved himself and he loved everything, the opulence of Rome and the power that it afforded to him as Roman emperor. He was part of a dynasty of emperors that came to power, well, through much bloodshed, and we have all of that. Of course, March 15th celebrates the Ides of March, and that's when Julius Caesar was assassinated, right? And uh, a very uh, you know, historic moment in the Roman Empire. That precedes Nero by quite a bit. But that's kind of the way the Roman Caesars held on to their power, through making sure that they killed enough people around them that they were feared, but they also made sure no one got too close or else uh, they would you know, have to, they would probably lose their, their power. And there was a lot of that going on. And all of a sudden, in the midst of the Roman Empire, around A.D. 64, uh, this is 30 years after Christ has been uh, crucified and, and the resurrection that has taken place and the church has been now formed and, and missionaries have gone out and Paul was in his missionary journeys. Uh, he was actually in prison during the time of Nero. And great persecution fell particularly under Nero and then in successive years many times over there was persecution of Christians the big problem was this that the Roman Caesars uh, elevated themselves to a place of of deity they believed they were gods now they were very weak gods at best and very manipulative and and sinful by most accounts for sure but they were just men, and men are just men at their best, by the way. That's it. Don't ever elevate a man, a woman, or anybody else to a place where you say they're like God. They may point us to the Lord if they're living for Him, but most of us, I'll tell you what, rapidly will fail you if you point people that way. But you know, the Caesars demanded that there would be allegiance given to them. And so, men like Nero had a plan they said everybody in my empire every year you'd go to a, a a temple that was established and there you would take a pinch of incense and you would offer it before a pagan altar and you would do so showing your dedication to the emperor and in the process of that you were actually saying and identifying that he is god or a god only problem is all of a sudden christians came along and there were Jews too as well during that time. Suffered great persecution because they believed that that was wrong. Because our Ten Commandments say that, don't they? The Bible said that you shall have no other gods before me. None. Okay? There's only one God. And these Christians who did not mean harm to anybody in that way, they would not do that. Many of them would not do that. And because of it, they were found out. Some of them had to go into hiding some of them had to go to places that were scattered out, you know, where they were away from Rome's influence somewhat. Uh, some of the places like here mentioned, it says, to the pilgrims of the dispersion into, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Most of those uh, geographic regions would fall in what we call Asia Minor, which would be modern-day Turkey. But it was further out than that even. And there were Christians scattered out there. So when Peter, who is the author of this, he's the who, right? And you say, well, who's he writing to? He's writing to scattered believers. Okay? That's 
who he's writing to. He didn't write to a specific church. Like, for instance, Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. We have the book of Ephesians and the church at Colossae. That's Colossians. And, and you can go right down through those. But this is a general epistle given to all believers. And you know what? Particularly believers who've been scattered around. I think we live in a world that's like that, isn't it? We live in a world where there's lots of believers and they've been scattered around for sure. I already mentioned when it was written. That's this AD 64, about that time frame. Most people would say it was under Nero's persecution. Um, there is some argument over that, but I would say the best evidence points to that date or right around that date. And that would have been also the year that Nero uh, was known to burn down Rome. Now, he blamed the Christians for that. He blamed that Christians uh, caused Rome to burn. And you've heard the phrase that, you know, uh, about, about you know, Nero burning Rome and, and uh, he sang while Rome burned and all that. But I say this, that uh, probably Christians got a bad rap on that because most people today, the evidence lends itself to the fact that probably Nero burned it himself because he had massive expansion projects he wanted. And Rome was a, you know, a, uh, well, it was a kind of a strange democracy, but, but powerful senators and powerful politicians that had become entrenched in things and they did not want to see property turned over. And so the emperor, you know, Caesar still had his own political things he had to do. So he figured a great way to do that is just get rid of it all and now we'll start over. And he built out of that big projects, um, including like the Circus Maximus, which is where they did uh, horse races and expanded all kinds of other areas and temples and other things that he built and mostly to honor himself just so you know but he blamed the christians for that and most of society bought into that they said those awful christians after all they won't pinch incense to the the caesar and they go against everything we teach and those those christians we're gonna we're gonna show them and again many jews got caught up in that as well because they were monotheistic and they began to persecute them. And Nero was, was ruthless in this area. I would, for sake of time and politeness, not go into all the details, but he had Christians uh, tortured and kills, killed in ways that are almost unimaginable. Uh, Nero would take Christians of all ages, children, women, men. He would, uh, on, I'll just share this one thing, and he would often uh, sew them up in and uh, wet animal skins, okay? And allow the sun to dry the animal skin. And what that does is it shrinks and slowly suffocates you. Then he would soak them in oil and impale them on poles and light them on fire so he could see by the light of burning bodies as he walked through his garden at night. You say, how can someone do that? Because man is inherently evil. And unless he's delivered from his sin... I'll tell you, would you like to live in a time like that, right? No. Would you like to live in a country like that or a region like that or have a, have a leader like that? No, you wouldn't. You'd probably do what most Christians did. They went into hiding and they took off. Some went to the far corners of the Roman Empire and where they could sort of live under the radar. And that's the condition, the kind of the who that, again, Paul or Peter here is writing and he's you, you say, well, that's also the why he's writing to them. He's writing to scattered believers. And actually, it's verse 6 that tells us this. And it says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Now, that's a very concise way of saying it's just for a little while, but you're going, we know you're going through various trials. The various trials were some great things. 
It wasn't just that their property was being confiscated. That was happening. It wasn't that they were taking blame for things they didn't do. It wasn't that they just always were being you know, scowled and, and scorned upon because <coughs> they would not uh, do what everybody else was doing. But it was literally because people hated the early Christians because they thought that they were a threat to things. It was later on that the Romans figured out that it was the Christians who were their best citizens. They were some of the most loyal and honest people in that day. I, I still see that happening occasionally in the world. Back uh, when we were living in Ukraine, and you got to understand in the former Soviet Union, in the Soviet Union, very corrupt politics. You think our politics are corrupt? No, no, no. You don't know anything about what goes on. And almost everything there was kind of smoothed with corruption of some sort. Bribes, lots of bribes, lots of things. And, and Christians you know, live in that society. And there were people who would say, it's impossible to be that position in, in society and not be corrupt. You can't live that way. So Christians wouldn't go there. And it was interesting, there was a, a guy who came in and he uh, was elected as their prime minister, <clears throat> and president, I guess, and he said, I'm going to clean up corruption. And so the first thing he did, and they have a, a Congress where their parliamentary system and it's set up like that, and people are appointed and by party and all that, similar to what you see in other parliamentary governments. And this, uh, the leader said this, I, there's a guy I want for interior minister. That's the guy in charge of the police and in charge of all the civil authority. And, and they're dreadfully feared. You know, these are positions of tremendous power. And he chose a guy who was an outsider, and he chose a guy that was a Christian, an evangelical Christian. And when the media went crazy with it, they said, why are they choosing these guys? You know, this guy, he's not in politics, and he, he's a nobody, and, and yet he had a history of being very honest about things, and he was very vocal about his faith. And the president of Ukraine said this at the time. He said, I chose him because I think he's the only honest guy that will do the job. The only honest guy. Hmm. That spoke volumes for the way he saw Christians. You know, Well, guess what? Rome came to that late also. They realized that it's actually those that really were allegiant, had their allegiance to the Lord first and foremost that were, they were some of the best citizens. But by then it was too late. The society was in collapse. It was rotting from within and, and a lot of things were happening. But back there in AD 64, I'm, this is all introductory stuff today, but listen, the believers were scattered out into places. And I've mentioned a few of these before, but places like Cappadocia. That's, if you ever Google Cappadocia, uh, Google fairy chimneys of Cappadocia. That's a good uh, term. And you'll see entire cities that were built out of sandstone and they are built up into some of these pillars like houses up on, you know, built into sandstone and rocks and they were literally living underground, in the ground, in rock, had their churches built that way. They had places where they could go underground and live with thousands of people live underground. That was their accommodations. That's how they were living. And, and they did that since ancient times all the way up into, into that. That's where Christians went. Places like that. And that's what you find as Peter writes the backdrop of this. They were going through great trials. And yet he reminds them it is but for a little time. A little time. My friends, if you're a believer, <laughs> listen, uh, I, I, this will come up later in another message, so I'm not going to preach another message to you here today, but I say this, that whatever you're going through today is but for a little time. 
Even if you say it may be years, it's just a little time. We'll go back to this though because uh, that's the, the who and the what and the why was written, I think. And as you look at that, those answer the big question and the to whom's are the believers and all of that. And you see how he writes and he says this and uses an interesting word. He says to the pilgrims of the dispersion. The word pilgrims is there. Your Bible might say strangers. It might say uh, exiles. Other translations use that. They're all words that mean just exactly that. It, it is a word that means someone who is a um, temporary resident. That would be the best term. Uh, in other words, it's, it's someone who where they live or where they occupy, it's not their permanent place. And it's a great word to describe Christians, really. If you're a true believer in Jesus Christ, this world is not your home. This world is a temporary place. And it's sometimes a beautiful place. Sometimes it's an awful place, isn't it? It's a scary place sometimes. But it's just a temporary place. And that's why we're called pilgrims. I like that term. Like The word pilgrims, a lot of times we say that to Americans and we associate with the, the pilgrims who came you know, in the winter of 1620 and on the Mayflower and those that followed them numbered as pilgrims. And they called themselves that because that's what they saw. They, they were in a world too that was contrary to their beliefs. And so they set out, even in spite of the great horrendous risks that were associated and the fact that over 50% of them died the first winter, almost 50% of them died the first winter. And you say, well, they didn't move to a new world to be safer, by the way. They moved to be free. And I'd say this carefully, don't give up your freedom easily, Okay. We have great liberty to proclaim the gospel and to believe things here in our country. And don't just hand that over to say, I'd like it more comfortable. Okay? And I'll leave it at that. I'm not preaching politics. I'm preaching what the Bible allows for us because God created man with a will and we, and we have a choice to exercise that will as He reveals Himself to us. And, and we'll talk a little bit about that because it goes to my next point. We're pilgrims, okay? If you're a believer in Christ, you're a pilgrim. That's what you are. Dispersion, it's the diaspora. That's the Greek word. It means to throw seeds. And there were part, in other words, these were part of those that were scattered. And it, the word diaspora means to scatter seeds. And that's exactly what God does when He scatters His people. You realize that it's a wonderful thing when I am out and I could, be, I could be on the other end of the state. I could be in other countries. I've had this happen several times where I've run into somebody that knows somebody or has been connected somehow even up here. All right, And, and you just go, wow. There are believers that are scattered throughout the world that have a common root even here in northern Maine. But in Christ, it's even bigger than that, obviously. right? Christians everywhere, we have a common root. Uh, element which is jesus our savior and you can be anywhere in the world and you run into a christian and and it's great and one of the wonderful things and if we're living the way we should we should be like seed that is scattered out there and you know where seed falls it hopefully it blooms where it's planted but you say you don't know the ground i was planted in (laughs) you know i came up in a rotten family i came up in a hard household i came up with a dad who was abusive or i came up with you know this situation in my life or i we lived in abject poverty or it was just always dark in my life growing up you know what and you say this that's sometimes where we our seed is thrown (laughs) and you have no choice in that necessarily 
But you do have a choice of how you live in it. Sometimes we live in those conditions and you look at them and you say, my world is a dark world. I'm on some rocky ground here, Lord. Very rocky. And you know what? That's a great place to bloom. I love it. I tell the illustration, a few years ago we were in Nova Scotia. I was down at a missions conference. My wife was with me. We had the morning off and we went out walking along the Atlantic Ocean on that south shore of Nova Scotia and just fine rocks all over the shoreline and all that. And you can tell, of course, where the high tide mark is because the seaweed is washed up onto high tide. And way up there is, is where um, we're walking along and we could look and we could see where the high tide mark was. And we're walking, obviously, you know, in between tides. And lo and behold, in the rocks right there was a dandelion blooming. Hmm. As they say, if everything else died on earth, there'd still be dandelions, right? And, and cockroaches, probably. Listen, uh, I was amazed at that little dandelion. I don't know why it chose to bloom that day and on the coast of the Atlantic where salt water washes over it, but it did. And I think it was God just saying, see, I can plant, I can plant my life right here where no life can exist. And you know what? He can do the same thing with you. Where you think there's no spiritual life in your heart, where you say, you don't know my background, you don't know what I'm like. Well, you know what? God does, and He can plant His seed. And He can bring it to fruition. And sometimes He scatters His seed far and wide so that others may know what He's like. Sometimes the only way we know really what He's like is when others go through some great hard trials and we learn what God's like because we watch them go through it. Or we watch them be compassionate or uh, loving in a situation where they shouldn't be. Or in a world that's really just different. Because that's what he says. You're strangers. You're pilgrims. You're exiles. You're just people that are passing through. And you know what? You live in a foreign land and you stand out. Don't care how you look. You know? Uh, I, I couldn't go. When we lived overseas, I, I mean, as soon as I would speak, people would know that I was from America. They knew that. Not because I was overly loud or anything like that. It was just my accent was enough. They knew that I was speaking Russian with uh, an American English accent somewhere in there. Even though I didn't hear it, they did. And a lot of times they would get that. Sometimes they would accuse me from being from Canada, you know, because I'm live close enough to Canada, I think. Or I went to school in Canada. Maybe that's what it was, which is fine. I'm, I'm happy with that too. But I, I remember having that, and you stand out. But it's worse for you because you're there, and when you first get there, nothing looks familiar can't pick up a newspaper and read it you can look at the pictures and try to guess what they're talking about you can look at certain things and say well that that's probably a stop sign even though it doesn't look like you know the words don't look like stop uh, uh you know you might be here but you, you hear things but you really don't understand and you know that's exactly the way it is as a christian sometimes you know we live in this world and it's just contrary to things and you, just about the time you think you have it figured out it turns on you <laughs> and that's gonna the way it's gonna be you're always going to be a stranger here. Always. Because this world is not our home. That's our relationship to the world. And there's certainly lots of things there. You know, you're always going to be a stranger. And, and what does it mean in practical terms? Well, it means this. If you're a businessman and you say, I'm going to do it honestly and do it right, you're a stranger in this world. If you're a husband who says, 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be faithful to my wife, even if there's opportunity not to be faithful to your wife. You know what? You're a stranger in this world. You know, if you're a Christian teenager and you say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to remain pure before marriage, and, and I'm going I'm to save myself for that special someone that God brings into my life, you're, you're a stranger in this world. You are really a stranger in this world. People like Tim Tebow and others that have publicly declared that they have remained a virgin before marriage, they are ridiculed to no end. But is not that what the Bible tells us? To be pure? God's all for sex. He is. He's the one that He, he devised us, made us the way we are, but he, he gives it in the confines of marriage and He says, enjoy. What a wonderful thing. I, I look at that and, and I, I mean, you go right down through it. I mean, what about work on the job? And you say, well, I'm going to work today not as man sees me, but as God sees me. I'm going to go and paint that part of the wall that nobody could ever see in a million years. You know, whatever. I'm going to go do that. When you say, well, why are you going to do that? Because God knows it's there. And, or whatever. Some, something like that. And you're doing it as unto the Lord. Guess what? You're a stranger in this world. If you're somebody that says, well... Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cope with the affairs of this life by drinking myself down the train or whatever, you know. And you say, uh, you know, that, that's, not, that's, that's what the world tells you. But if you say, I'm not going to do that, you're a stranger. You're a stranger. Because the world says, look, deaden it down, you know. Tone it out, whatever else. Tune it out. God says, tune me in, you know. That's what we need to do. You could go over and over and over again. My friend Ray Pritchard calls it this way. He says, he says let me be the first to welcome to the fraternal order of Christian strangers. <laughs> I like that. Probably that's what, I don't know if I've ever heard a church called that, but really that's what it probably, that's a good name for a church. The fraternal order of Christian strangers. <laughs> I don't know. Somebody will probably come up with that. Don't, okay? Follow Christ. Him first and foremost. We better move on here. Uh, looking at verse one there, then verse two. Oops, there we go. Verse two. And this is our last verse today. Now, I know I spent an hour on the first one, but it's all right. We'll keep going. He starts off saying this, and he's referring to believers elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Oh, what wonderful words that are there. Peter begins this section and he points everything right back to God. Particularly the triune God. Do you follow that? He says, elect according to foreknowledge of God the Father. There's God the Father. In sanctification of the Spirit. There's the Holy Spirit. And by the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. There's God the Son. Jesus. Wow. The triune God is the one who's with you <laughs> and the one who saved you and the one who offers salvation. Oh, I, I love that. And it's, we'll read starting off here. He says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. You realize that if you're in Christ, that you are chosen in Him. That's what the word elect means. You're chosen in Him. It's based upon Him. I, I don't want to get into the argument of where the choosing is going and all this and, and who did it and who didn't and and if man has a choice and doesn't, I will say this, that I believe the Bible does present very clearly that God is the instrument, uh, uh, He is the originator, excuse me, who goes 
and has initiated salvation and initiated the method of salvation through Jesus Christ. And He did it from eternity past. He did it before the worlds were even founded because the Bible tells us that. But it also says that we need to be obedient. To the, and this, it says for the obedience of the sprinkling of the blood of Christ. So there needs to be an obeying part. That shows that man has to have a will. For obedience to occur, there has to be implied disobedience. Okay? You can't... If if you always choose one way, then there's not obedience. That's just programming. God created man, and you could even argue angels originally as well, with a will to worship or not. And because man chose not to worship, because he disobeyed God, he fell into sin and immediately was condemned because of his sin. And everybody that follows in his race, guess what? We're all sinners. Every last one of us, we're sinners. But God didn't leave us there. See, he had a plan. And it was he, in his foreknowledge, he even saw exactly who would be part of that plan. And that's what Peter's talking about here. Elect according to foreknowledge of God. The word foreknowledge, it's the word we get our, our word prognosis from. Prognosis. If you go to a doctor... And a doctor says, I have a prognosis for your condition. What he's saying is, I know what's happening to you, and I know where it's going. That's what you hope anyways. Hopefully he comes up or she comes up with a, tr- with a way to treat that. But a prognosis is foreseeing something with uh, some plan in mind, if you want to think about it in that way. And that's exactly what God did. You see, he doesn't inhabit man's time. He inhabits eternity. That's what the book of Isaiah says. So to God, if you're a Christian, if you've, if you've believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, yes, there was a moment in our time when that occurred. All right? And there was a, a very moment when that happened. But you know what? It's, as for God, it's always been. Because from the beginning to the end, He sees it all. And that's why I get down to this, and I don't want to get too deep in this, because there's men far bigger brains than I'll ever have, and they, they have lots of books written and articles and all this stuff, and lots of debate that goes on, and, and all of this stuff that happens. And I just say, go back to the Bible, strip out the arguments and stuff, but just go back to the Scriptures. And you will see a God who is sovereign, who is in the affairs of everything, and yet He has made man in a way that He gives him a will. And in our sin, we have a fallen will. It will always go away from God. But I'll tell you this, that He reaches out and He says, I'll tell you what, the Holy Spirit will draw you and He will illuminate you and He will convict you and He will reprove sin. And He will point you to Jesus Christ. That's what the Spirit of God always does. He always points people to Christ. He makes big of Him. Because it was the Son that went to the cross. It was the Son who died. It was God the Son who died. And that why, that's why... He is singled out in that way. Though He be equal with God entirely, we find that it is uh, the sprinkling of the blood of Christ that stands as the sacrifice above all sacrifices. You were chosen in Christ, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. And He also um, is not finished with us, by the way. You might look around and say, well, he's not doing a very good job with some of you. Maybe not. I don't know. I don't have to look too far. I can see my reflection every morning and I say, wow, you know, um, everything in this world is undoing. And sometimes we get caught up in things we shouldn't get caught up. Sin. 
Sometimes sin is named among us. I, one of my prayers is, Lord, you know, you know, don't let me stay on this earth any longer than I, you know, I, don't, I don't want to ruin your testimony somewhere along the line. <laughs> Keep me from that. Deliver us from evil, right? He said as we pray. How are you cleaned though? Well, first of all, you're called. You're called by the sanctification of the Spirit. That's God's call. It's a call that I believe goes out universally. Not everybody obeys. Not everybody understands. But it is part of God's part of His plan or it is responsibility. He's gone out and He's put out a call. But the sacrifice, the cleansing, comes with the sprinkling of blood. You know, it's a better sprinkling. We, we read that from um, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24 today when we were celebrating our Lord's table. And He says there, it's, it's better than Moses's, uh, you know. Uh, in the book of Hebrews it says that and that's true there's only one occasion in the Old Testament where people were sprinkled with blood I mean like lots of people and it was in Exodus chapter 24 and you read there of the account where God gives the law to Moses on Mount Sinai he comes down uh, Moses does and it was there that the Jews that were present were sprinkled with blood And they did so covenanting with the Lord, saying, we'll keep your law. Hmm. Only one problem with that. What happened to that generation, by the way? Yeah, they never entered into God's rest and His promise. What happened to them right after that even, you know, after they were sprinkled with blood? They, They sinned, a lot of them, right? They did all kinds of things, terrible things. You know one of the things that, the sprinkling of the blood that was done at the law, it was just a, it was a covenant. God kept up His bargain. Absolutely. God never fails. But it was a reminder to man that we can't keep His law. I don't care who you are. You can't keep it. You won't. You say, I've kept most of it. Well, it's not enough. You break even the little bit, even in your heart, and you have sinned against God. I mean, that's what Jesus said. You know, if a man looks on a woman to lust after her, he's committed adultery already with her in his heart. In other words, um, you guys that think, oh, I've never cheated, I've never done that, I must be okay. No, if you've ever even had one stray thought towards another woman, you know what? That's where we are. That's how bad sin is. It permeates our whole being. And they're like that. And we have our own blood on our hands, really is what we have. But Jesus' blood is enough to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness forever. He takes our sin and He removes it. That's powerful blood. That's powerful sacrifice. And that's what He says, for obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. You are cleansed by His blood. There's no other way. That's it. That's the only way. And by the way, that's the, the truth that can occur, you know, and, and, and people connect it you know, from Christians scattered all over the world. Various backgrounds. Various levels of reconciliation needed with God. I think of, uh, and I mentioned in the beginning of this message, could you think God could forgive a murderer? Hmm. Yeah, all kinds of people figured that out. Uh, one of the things that came out this week and was talked about anyways in the death of Billy Graham and his funeral, and many people were remarking on the the casket in which he chose to be buried in. And I found that a fascinating story. Uh, He was buried in a very simple casket. It cost $215. It was a casket that was built out of plywood. 
The lining of it was from uh, comforter linings you can buy at Walmart. And it was built by convicted murderers in the Louisiana State Prison named, uh, called Angola. They built it, actually, a man named Lidget, who was the prisoner who was in charge of building caskets. He, he spent 36 years of his life in prison. He died in prison in 2007. And it was there that he was put in charge of other convicts, and there they built coffins. That's what they did. They built caskets. Very simple. And it was, it was a very simple design. I looked at it. It wasn't really many close-up shots there, but just a plywood box. It was, it was nice looking, everything. Some brass fittings on the outside for handles, a cross on top, and lined with some very in, inexpensive material. You say, why would Billy Graham choose to, to do that? be buried in such a box i mean certainly he could have afforded perhaps a, a nicer you know coffin you know why i think it speaks to who he was you may not agree whatever but i just say this i think he lived a very uh, in many ways uh, a man that remained in touch with with people who needed salvation <laughs> including himself but you know convicted murderers angola prison was known as one of the bloodiest and most violent prisons in the united states and if you ended up there most of the time you were a lifer you were somebody that had no chance of parole or you're on death row and it was a tremendously violent prison today it is a model prison and there have been i think six was it six? no i think it's even more than that yeah six other uh states who have started bible colleges within their prison because of they saw what took place in louisiana when people from the billy graham association and billy graham himself and franklin graham later on would go in and they would hold bible studies george beverly shea who sang with graham for years he went in in i think 2008 and um uh, no it was, it was after that and uh, sang with like 800 prisoners <laughs> they have uh, like 27 different chapels that go on inside that prison led by christians obviously and there's just been so many people converted that it has become a model prison. Even though most of these people never get out except in a coffin that someone built in the prison. That's it. As I watched that simple coffin being led away from a funeral and the procession going on to a burial, I thought, Lord, that's what you did. You see, Lord, you numbered yourselves with transgressors. And by the way, I, I didn't know this for sure, but it was said that, that Graham wanted the names of all those prisoners who helped build that coffin, he, for he and his wife as well, engraved on the inside of it. And probably that's, that's true. I thought that's neat, you know. But to number ourselves with transgressors, because I'll tell you this, sin has beat us down. And sin is great, but where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. And my friends, that salvation is offered to you somebody's going to lower your body some down someday down into the ground and is that the end of your life or is that just the beginning you see for the believer it's just the beginning when death takes hold of us oh we go and arise in a place immediately in the presence of god and a place that oh there'll be never any more pain and sin and evil and things that make us run today will only glory in Him. Oh, what a wonderful day that'll be for sure. He says, grace to you and peace be multiplied. What wonderful comforting words that Peter uses to open up his message. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank You for the Word of God and we pray, Lord, You'd bless it and continue it and help us to think on these things. And I pray, Lord, that before it's too late, even uh, people around us in our community, here perhaps, wherever, Lord, they would turn to You in faith and receive that wonderful grace and peace that You offer. In Jesus' name, Amen.